Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Today's guest is an author I've previously had as a guest and whose books I really enjoy, Douglas E. Richards. I just finished reading his latest novel, Portals. As I wrote in the review, he's got to be an alien based on the author's premise to write what you know. His near-future science fiction could easily slant to the horror, but he seems to be a super optimist and honestly believes that humanity will survive technology. And this is probably why I like talking to him so much, as I too am an optimist who almost always sees the glass half full. Welcome, Doug. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate it. Yeah, so um, after reading slash listening to your, to your book, I do both concurrently, I really enjoyed the last uh, section, author discussion of the novel. And the premise of this book was addiction. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so I mean, it was one of the uh, one of the premises, I guess. But um, I definitely talked about that quite a lot. So, uh, you know, for a long time, I've been toying with the idea of writing a science fiction novel with addiction as a main theme, uh, because addiction—it's obvious—it's become a huge problem. I mean, it's crisis levels. Yeah. And, for sure. And so I kind of wanted to do a science fictional take. And I thought, well, you know, what if you could figure it out? I mean, totally figure it out at the molecular level uh, so you can master addiction and you can use it as a weapon, you know, so you could either cure addiction if you're going to be benevolent or you could use it to addict people to whatever you wanted. Um, and so that was kind of my thinking. But for years I struggled and I couldn't figure out enough to sustain a whole novel. And then I came up with this portals idea um, of kind of a million identical Earths. Not a multiverse, because I think that's been, I mean, I as I mentioned in the book, I think that's been pretty done. I mean, I don't want to jump on that bandwagon. It seems like, you know, you have a toothpaste commercial. It's got a multiverse theme. Um, it, it's become pretty, pretty, uh, pretty done. So, uh, but, yeah. but it's different. These are kind of terraform planets. Who knows how, who built them? But they're all connected, a million of them. And they all started with an, an initial stock of humans, but they all diverged. So they're not like identical versions of yourself in a million multiversal planets. These are all different people and cultures. And, and so I wanted to see what that would go. But, but addiction definitely plays a big role. And I was able to th thread that into this novel and really address it. Yeah. And what you did with that, though, too, is and working with the technology. And this is one thing I enjoyed on the previous books of yours that I read. The technology is all either there or almost there. And it's a real fine line between what is actually science and what is science fiction. How do you how do you do that? Because that that's pretty amazing. When I found out how much science, I used to think it was all science fiction, but now I realize how much science you actually have in there. Yeah, I mean, I've gone through a real um, uh, evolution myself uh, in a number of ways. Uh, when I first started writing these novels, I, I used to think, and I've mentioned this maybe even on this program, but I used to think I was going too far, like you know some some science fictional ideas that I had were, you know, were way too far out. They, we could never do this. But then I realized that, you know, things that I thought 50 years ago, I was in molecular biology, I was getting a PhD in genetic engineering. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was sequencing DNA. And uh -huh. it would take me days to sequence 300 base pairs of DNA. 
you know, and you'd, you'd sequence it, you'd get these little barcodes, uh, and you'd have to put it on a light box so it shines the light through the little black marks. And it was like time consuming and laborious. And at the time, if you would have said, when will we be able to sequence a billion base pairs in a day? I would have said never. I would have said it's like the speed of light. It can never be done. Okay. And yet, you know, 40 years later, we were seeking many, we were sequencing many billions of, of base pairs in a day. So, so I realized the things that are impossible today are, I think everybody's coming to realize, are just around the corner. That the, the pace of our accelerated scientific uh, uh, knowledge is just increasing to ridiculous levels. Yeah, and your, your use of, of um, a senior race, you know, which is alluded to, but not really gotten into to solve that dilemma of, of interstellar travel was pretty clever. But then when, you, when I started looking at then this whole idea of portals, he said, yeah, that's even part of the science as well. I went, oh my gosh. So how does that work? Yeah. So, so yeah, so it's so a portal. So, you know, basically wormholes that link worm, that link worlds that you can kind of step through and instantly, uh, you know, travel to another world. And that seems pretty far-fetched. Um, and yet the U.S. government itself is, is actually studying this, um, which is, which is really amazing. Um, the, um, th there's a, the, the defense uh, agency, uh, you know, has been looking at UFOs and that was the subject of my last novel and, and they've even written papers. So here's a paper and you can Google it that the actual, the D defense intelligence agency actually put out traversable wormholes, stargates and negative energy. So pretty mind blowing stuff. These guys are really searching, but, but the idea is that a wormhole is kind of punching a hole through, through time space. And, you know, scientifically, time space is something that is that gravity impacts. That's what gravity is. It kind of pushes into the fabric of time space, like it's a trampoline. And so, you know, it pushes on the trampoline and then it causes everything to roll toward it. If, it's, if you have a heavy object on a trampoline, then if you put marbles, they'll all roll toward the heavy object. And so, right. so if you could control gravity, you could control space-time. And so what this paper says, uh, again, bitten by, written by very serious people at the Defense Intelligence Agency, if you could have anti-gravity, you could create wormholes pretty easily. Okay, and and but then the people think, okay, what you know, because because again, if you can control gravity, you can control space time, and you can do this stuff. But everybody says, well, okay, anti gravity, that's just science fictional, also. But but maybe not because, you know, scientists for a long time have been talking about this stuff called dark energy, and dark energy, it, it, the the universe is expanding faster than it should be. It's 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 pushing apart. Uh, there's a force that's pushing it apart. And, and, you know, obviously, if there's a force that are, is pushing mass apart rather than pulling it together, gravity pulls things together, dark energy pushes it apart. And I think science is starting to realize, hey, th th this could really be a real thing. There could be a huge amount of anti-gravity. We're not sure how it works, but pushing the universe apart. And if we can grab that anti-gravity and harness it, we can make these portals uh, that can pot potentially link worlds. So the, it is a possibility. I'm not saying that it ever will happen, but it's definitely within the realm of at least our understanding of science. Yeah, I was pretty, um, I guess, shocked on the last interview we did where, in your, at least on the uh, Kindle version of your book, where you had links in there in the intro talking about some of the 
copyrights that have been filed on this technology. I was like, really? They've actually got copyrights and they've been approved copyrights? That's just, that's just, it's just amazing. And then how you found it and knew about it, just add a lot more of that, this fine line between science and science fiction as it gets more and more science fiction is that herald of possibility and that possibility is arriving faster than um, I was thinking that it was. No question about it. And like you said, for unidentified, um, you know, the, the actual, the Navy has issued, has, uh, has, has issued patents on technologies that are being used by UFOs. And, you know, that's the uh, last novel. We already talked about that, so I won't really go into detail. Mm-hmm. But, but the idea of the, the last novel is, you know, that there have been so many sightings right now, and the government's coming out and saying, this is real stuff. And, the, and these, these craft are doing stuff. I mean, seen by hundreds and hundreds of trained Navy personnel and radar and, and orbital radar and satellites, whatever. They're seeing these things, like, defy the physics that we know it. I mean, they can move and change direction at ridiculous speeds, they can fly underwater at ridiculous speeds in space, in air, um, and so the Navy actually published a patent on all of this technology that allows that to happen. And and the patent talks about a ship exactly like the UFOs that we're seeing. So I don't know if they reverse engineer them or what happened. And you think, well, this is ridiculous. But the patent office tried to reject it, saying it's the same thing. This is ridiculous. And uh, they convinced the patent office that they could do it. That it could be done. So I think there's more going on with the UFO story than meets the eye by far. Yeah. That's amazing. It's just, um, it makes you want to introduce you also to Joe Montaldo, who's got this um, UFO paranormal. He's got, he's, it's his network that actually uh, sponsors this, uh, this podcast. And he's got millions of followers. This is just fascinating. Just fascinating. So anyway, getting back to um, this the book and your writing style and technique, because this is the Writers of the Future podcast. So you've got a very distinct way of going about your introduction, your storyline, and then you have this really nice little narrative at the end where you talk about how this book came to be and, and validating and thanking the various people involved with it and the technologies and whatnot. So how did you come upon like your style? Um, you know, I mean, there's so many things that go into it. I mean, I have a big science background. I've always loved science fiction. Um, you know, I've always thought, you know, Harry Potter is really fascinating. Like magic is really cool, but science is actually more interesting and even more mind blowing in, in almost every way than, than magic. I mean, if you look at the speed of light, I mean, that goes around the, it's so fast. It goes around the earth seven times in a single second. I mean, that's, that's ridiculously fast, and yet by universal standards, that's very slow. Um, and the fact that, you know, as, as you get to the speed of light, time stops, your mass increases to infinity. I mean, all of this stuff, it like, seems like magic to me. So when I was a kid, I just loved this stuff. I loved having my mind blown by stuff that was real. And so I gravitated towards science fiction and science. You know, I studied molecular biology, got a master's in that. And then when I started writing... Um, I wanted to really put a lot of that mind-blowing stuff in, research a lot of it, make it real and as accurate as I could possibly do. And that's when I came across the idea of putting notes at the end of the book. Where I, you know, and some of them are like 20, 30-page notes where I, where I go through every single thing that I've introduced in the book and I say, okay, here's where we're, all, we're at with that. You know, this is actually real. This is being worked on today. And then I give references so people can kind of explore it more if they'd like to. It's just, yeah, it's, to me, it was just, it's just amazing. Now, obviously, you pride yourself on your research, 
But you've said that you believe this to be important for every genre, not just science fiction. Why is that? Um, people love learning. People like learning interesting new things. I mean, how many times are we watching a show and it'll say something like mosquitoes lay a billion eggs or whatever it is. I'm just making this up. And, yeah. and we instantly Google that. Is that true? That's really interesting. You know, I mean, how many times are we Googling stuff we hear on a show? And that's because, you know, we're kind of uh, wired to want to learn stuff. And, and not like we, when we were in school, it was shoved down our throat and some of us didn't love that. But, you know, but it just in, in real life. And, and one of the things that make a great novel great is it opens your mind. It gives you new ideas. It exposes you to new stuff. And so right. I think in every genre, science fiction or otherwise, I mean, even if you're writing a romance novel, which about is, is as far from my genre as you can possibly get, um, <laughs> you, um, you know, you could talk about the science of, you know, what sexuality. I mean, why are people sexually attracted to other people? You know, what about us that we see something, you know, we see a picture of a, of a woman, for example, and suddenly you have a heart rate change or, you know, physiological things happen just out of vision. So, I mean, you can... It adds authenticity and interest to anything you're writing, and it can help you in really unexpected ways. If you, I can give you an example that, that I think is pretty interesting, if you, if you want. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think um, the example is, and this happens all the time, but I'll talk about my novel, The Enigma Cube, and it kind of plays into what we were talking about, portals and anti-gravity. So for Enigma Cube, the premise was going to be, what if you could control gravity? Okay, completely control gravity. Um, and I had taken that, I had written that in a kid's book a long time before. And the idea was that you had this cube that was, that weighed like a trillion pounds. Okay, that was, that was inside a room and nobody could move it. I mean, you could take the biggest crane on earth and you couldn't budget a millimeter. Okay, and then they walk mm -hmm. in one day and it's gone. Okay, well, how can this thing be gone? That was kind of the mystery. I thought that was kind of a fun mystery. How does this thing that weighs a trillion pounds, how does somebody pick, put it in their pocket and take it away? And the answer is that they come to find it controls gravity completely. You can ratchet gravity up to, you know, incredible levels, or you can, you can ratchet it to zero. Okay. So, you know, you can come in, you could ratchet the cube down to zero and pick it up and move it easily. So anyway, so I was researching all the things you can do with gravity, with anti-gravity. And as I was doing that, I found out that the Nazis were experimenting with anti-gravity during World War II. Okay, I had no idea. Like, what the hell are the Nazis doing experimenting with anti-gravity way back then? And, um, mm -hmm. so I, and then I, I researched that a little bit more because I thought it was pretty fascinating. And I learned that, uh, you know, Hitler and the Nazis were fascinated with the occult. So it wasn't just yep. like, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is real stuff. They were fascinated. They had a huge, you know, witchcraft and wizardry and occult stuff and all of that stuff. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll write a little bit about that because it's really interesting stuff. You know, they also use crystal meth to get their troops all hyped up. You know, that's how they won. They did the Blitzkrieg. You know, they went into France three days and three nights. None of their soldiers slept because they were all on, on crystal meth. I had no idea. So I had no idea about that. Yeah. So all of this stuff, I said, well, I've got to put this in the book. This is so interesting. I mean, who knew that crystal meth was even available back then? Um, yeah. Let alone that the Nazis used it to make their you know, soldiers, uh, you know, kind of next Super level. Super soldiers. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, I, uh, so I started writing a few scenes in the past, you know, kind of a journal that this guy was having. And then I realized uh, what I just said to you, that if you could control anti-gravity, you can control space-time which means not only could you make portals, but you could do time travel. So then I thought to myself, wait a minute, 
if you can control gravity, you can do time travel. So maybe I can link World War II and what they're doing with anti-gravity to the modern day. And, and so half of the book now takes place in World War II. Anyway, the bottom line is, what, when I started to do this novel, the last thing, if you, if you would have said, you're going to have World War II in this novel, you're going to have Nazi Germans in this novel, I would have said you're out of your mind. I mean, it's supposed to be about gravity. But, but by doing research, I stumbled on this, what I thought was, turned out to be an incredibly interesting plot. That's, yeah, I mean, that's just amazing what you're saying there. So uh, do you only use primary sources, like talk to actual experts, or only secondary books, scholarly papers, Google searches, and so on? How, how, do, you, how do you break down your research? Nowadays, it's mostly uh, kind of Google's, Google searches and books because it's so easy to do. You know, I started this, John, uh, kind of before the internet was really the internet. And so you couldn't do those kind of Google searches. So yeah. in the early days, you had to really do the legwork. Um, and, and it's good to get, uh, you know, I'll tell you a, a, a couple interesting stories if, if you'll indulge me in, in, yeah. in that as well. So when I, before I was ever published, uh, I was working at Bristol-Myers Squibb as a director of biotechnology licensing, and uh, I was going to write a novel. And one of the ideas I had was, what if you could poison the water supply of a whole city? You know, how would you do that? So um, this is before 9-11. So I called up the, the Newark water treatment plant, and I got the head guy at the water treatment plant. And I said, hey, if I bring like four or five pizzas over for you and the guys, would you give me a tour? Would you kind of, you know, I want to know all about this so I can figure out how best to poison the facility for my novel. And, and the, guy, the guy says, oh, sure. You know, he didn't check who I was. He, I mean, I was a no name. I hadn't even been published. And he goes, yeah, yeah, come on by, bring some pizzas. So I brought some pizzas. So he's touring me. There's the Delaware River. This is where the water flows in. You know, this is where we, the sediment gets. So I pointed, I said, well, what if you put the poison right there where the water flows into your plant? And he goes, no, 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 no. It would be diluted too much. He says, you don't want to put the poison there. He says, where you want to put the poison is in the reservoir. After everything is done and it stays in this gigantic reservoir, and that's where you put it in because that concentrates it. And I said, well, that's very helpful. Thank you very much. And I said, but how, can you break into the reservoir? I mean, is it well protected? And he said, no, not at all. He says, you know, we've got like a cheap padlock, but every summer when it gets hot, kids break in and they swim in there. And I said, wait a minute, kids swim in the water that we're about to drink? <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he goes, yeah, that, that, that's, they do. And he says, we're allowed like one part per million filth. So, you know, it doesn't dirty the water enough. So I said, well, that's just a great thought picture of all these kids, <laughs> sweaty kids swimming in the water and then it goes right to my tap. Uh, but anyway, the bottom line was I found it pretty humorous, you know, and this is again before 9-11, where the guy was just very happy to explain to me how to poison the water supply of all of Newark. That's just, I mean, I, I thought your story may have ended up saying yes. And two days later, I had the uh, FBI <laughs> at my door. No, for that. <laughs> nobody. Yeah, then, then one other, one other quick one, uh, John. Uh, yeah. So I was early on, I was doing a book on psychopaths. And this one I'm actually re-releasing uh, because for the, I, I sold it to uh, Tor, which is a major science fiction publisher. And, sure. And this was a long time ago. And it was never in Kindle Unlimited, which is kind of a big thing now where I, you know, people get their Kindle books for free uh, on a, yeah. a monthly subscription. So I've, I've, I've got the rights back from Tor. 
and in March I'm putting it out again. But anyway, it was about psychopaths. And uh, so I was studying the heck out of him. And the reason I wrote it is because I learned that uh, there are differences in brain chemistry, brain physiology between psychopaths and normals. And that like 1% of the population is psychopathic, which is astonishing to me. So I, I wanted to study the heck out of that. Anyway, I, f I came across a guy who goes into prisons and studies psychopaths, interviews them, gives them MRIs. He's at the University of Wisconsin. And so I called him up and I said, hey, I'm researching a novel. Um, and it was really fascinating. I mean, so you really do get better information and more interesting information when you, when you do primary research. Because this guy, he goes into the prisons. He doesn't, he, you think they have a Hannibal Lecter mask and they're chained up. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to yeah, say. <laughs> yeah. They don't. I mean, the guy goes in and they're completely unchained. He's alone with them in the room. And I said, you're alone with a psychopathic murderer? And he says, yeah, it takes him getting used to. <laughs> I said, getting used to? Man, you've got cojones the size of Texas. Um, yeah. But, but uh, he said, well, it takes him getting used to. But actually, they're model prisoners because they're very um, selfish. And they, so why? Well, they're already in prison. They want to be treated as well as possible. So it doesn't, doesn't gain them anything. You know, so so they tend to be model prisoners. You know, they and they you know they join all the you know the groups and they and they they really they kind of try to fake you out so they can get off early. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah. That, but that that's, a, that's but that's something you wouldn't get unless you actually talk to somebody that did that exactly. that worked in there and, and saw that exactly. Now, one thing is interesting too, because you do like in this on this book portals. There's a lot of scary technology there. And one of the videos you recommended at the back of the book on about this thing was a video on slaughterbots. That was crazy insane. How close are we to that? I sure hope we're not close at all, but I fear. Oh, me too. Yeah, I think we probably are, John. To be honest with you, you know, like I say, technology is advancing so rapidly. Just to give the audience kind of a sense of what these things are, they're. And, and by the way, look, Google the, the Slaughterbot video, S-L-A-U-G-H-T-E-R-B-O-T, Slaughterbot, and, and you'll see it on YouTube. And it's really well done. But it's... It's it, science fiction, everybody. Yeah. The video is not a real live presence. It's a, it's a movie, a, a short movie. And, and they did it, though, to scare people purposely so that they would lobby against this becoming a reality. But basically, it's like these little teeny drones the size of flies, let's say, and they packed with explosives. And they can zoom around at ridiculous speed and they can target anybody. They can just, you know, they just slam into your forehead and your, your head explodes. Um, and so they can take out, you know, if 20 people are standing around a mall, you know, you can have a swarm of these guys, boom, boom, boom. And simultaneously, all 20 of them are killed. So it's super scary technology. And, and you know, obviously it's irresistible to use in a novel. <laughs> For sure. You, that was like your, it made sense. You know, I was like, why do you open with this thing? Like you got these things. Okay, that's cool. But then, where'd it go? It was gone. And then all of a sudden, at the end, like ah. Well, but you know the um, I call them Yondu drones because that's a, yeah. another way for people who haven't seen the video. But a lot of I think most of us have seen Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one. Mm -hmm. and, right. and and if you remember Yondu, the blue alien dude, you know, with the kind of the fin on his head, and he controlled that arrow. And in the beginning, you're thinking, oh, what's, you know, big deal. So he can control an arrow with his mind. You know, he threatens one guy with it. But when you see the power of it, when he, when he gets crash landed on the planet at the end, and if you remember, there's like 40 guys spread out all over the place with guns. And he just, that, that, that arrow 
he causes it to go through each of their heads in a second. I mean, it just zips around like a pinball and just takes out like 40 guys in seconds. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought, wow, that's really the coolest weapon I've ever seen. And so I wanted to incorporate, and I have in in a number of novels now, because it's just such a a cool and scary weapon. Yeah. To me, the the S word has more emphasis for me than the C word, yeah. but yes. Yeah, <laughs> scary. No, I mean, if you're a writer though, you know, it's, it, again, if you're a writer, you're kinda, you kind of enjoy the concept. If you're a human being, you kind of hate the concept. Yeah, there's, there's no getting away from it. It's like, you're, you're foobar. <laughs> yeah, well, there are countermeasures. And as a science fiction novelist, by the way, that, that's the important thing. You've got to find weaknesses. So, you know, Superman has to have kryptonite kryptonite yeah right. achilles have to has to have a heel because if you have a character or a weapon that's you know impossible to defeat then you don't have a novel because you know like what what fun is superman if he can't be defeated um right yeah so so yeah so the one of the things you have to do no matter how potent or impressive the technology is you have to write it so that there are flaws and weaknesses that can be exploited that makes sense that that makes good sense in this stuff now one thing too about you specifically and how, you know, you, you've, wrought, you've got these, these stories, these near future, medium future stories where it's, things can get seriously like uh, in trouble, but you've got an attitude about the um, life in general, like it's, it's never been so good. You know, this is better now than we've ever had before. Yeah, I mean, look, we're in a crazy world. I don't think I'm telling you anything new. The world is a little bit insane right now. I mean, so on the one hand, everybody's super pessimistic. Everybody thinks that things are worse than they've ever been. And the opposite is true. You know, by every measure, you know, there's a number of books that I cite in uh, Unidentified and other novels. You know, there's something called Factfulness by Hans Rosling, which I would alert readers to to look at. Uh, On every measure, poverty, education, longevity, health, uh, technology, uh, uh, you know, entertainment. You know, we live better than kings did in, in old. And things, but, mm-hmm. but we think all of those things are getting worse, not better. And that's because at the same time as we're living in this incredible age, we're the more pessimistic than ever because we have 24-7 news, doom and gloom cells. You know, we're more polarized than ever. Everything is political. Um, you know, so so it's really kind of sad that in the age where we're making so much progress and we're, we have so much reason for optimism that, you know, all of these news outlets, that's all they can think about is how to portray things as pessimistically as possible, which I, which I think yeah. is unfortunate. It's really, really deeply unfortunate. Yeah, it is unfortunate, but nevertheless, news is, bad news is entertainment. Yeah. You know, doom and gloom is, is modern day entertainment, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. It's good that you, like, you really come across as an optimist Ultimately, you're not, you're optimistic about the future, and you see things as you know. You seem to see things as the cup is half full because I know at the end of your books, somehow that's going to resolve. Sometime it's going to be somehow it's going to be worked out so that you know it does come out good in the end, and not necessarily that right makes right, um, or that right is is ultimately the good thing, but that. Um, it resolves. So it is like the greater good for what's going on. Yeah. I mean, I, look, that, that's how, I, I mean, I know dystopia is all the rage right now, you know, post-apocalyptic, 
is all the rage. Uh, and that's never been my thing. I, I'm kind of like, you know how Star Trek has always been kind of optimistic? Sure. Of, of the future. It show, it, you know, it shows a future in which humankind is at, kind of at its best rather than its worst. And, uh, you know, I've always been a huge Star Trek fan. And that's just how I am by nature. And I've told this story probably on this podcast, John. I can't remember what we talked about the last <laughs> podcast. But, but my favorite story, and for all you listeners who listen to the first podcast, if I've already said this, I apologize. But, but my favorite story is... No, just pay attention this time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Stop. Um, but but um, my favorite story is, is uh, you know, like in the 1850s, they were, they were worried about New York growing too, too fast. So, the, you know, the mayor did a, had experts do a study about New York and, you know, what's it going to be like in, in 50 years if we keep growing? And the experts came back and said, we got, a, we got a real crisis on our hands. If we keep growing at the same rate in 50 years, New York will be knee deep in horse manure. In horse manure, knee deep, and and and, um, and and what's so great about that story is because, of course, fifty years later, was it knee deep in horse manure? But they never could have guessed that they would invent the automobile. I mean, in their view, they were like deep futuristic thinkers. These people who did the report, but they could never imagine mm-hmm. an automobile. It just wasn't part of their mental ability to imagine at that time. When you only have horses, you never think of a powered driving machine. That completely eliminates horses, okay? And so I think that's, that's what the human being is capable of and has proven time and time again throughout history that when we're faced with a challenge, we overcome it. And so it's laughable now to think that horse manure, too much horse manure in New York City is going to be a problem. Um, it's laughable. But at the time, you know, so many people thought it would be kind of a horror show. And I think that's what's mm-hmm. happening now. All the problems that we're facing now that seem insurmountable, I think that we're going to find ways because we're that creative. Yeah. I think it's right. And one of the things I think you've, you've read Battle for the Earth, but after Ellen Hubbard wrote Battle for the Earth, he gave an interview to the Rocky Mountain News. And because he was an, an optimist also as well, even though the beginning of the book starts off post-apocalyptic, the whole thing is just an upward arc to the ultimate um, survival of humanity, where it's it's the spirit of, of, of humanity that is the, is the ultimate conqueror of uh, opposition. And that's what you've got some of your, at least what I get out of your writing as well, because he was asked how science fiction changed since you were active in the field 50 years ago. What major changes have you seen in science fiction as it has evolved, particularly contrasting the science fiction of the 50s with the science fiction of the 80s? And he said, science fiction is waxed between technology and people. Stories have been either about the latest gimmick or about people. In 1938, I was asked by the top brass of Street and Smith Publishing Company to write science fiction stories for the new magazine, Astounding Science Fiction. In those days, a request from Street and Smith was not to be taken lightly. Nevertheless, I complained that I wrote about people, not machines, which was the vogue. They said that was just what they wanted and to go ahead. I did. Until then, SF was virtually nothing but hyperspace drives and time machines and various mechanical gimmicks. The human element was secondary. For me, the human element and human potential is always primary. People are simply more fun than machines. And then he goes on and talks about the biggest box office smash at that time was E.T. is about people. And the technology is not only secondary, but a threat. The looming technology that comes in to capture E.T. I think that is perhaps the greatest gift in science fiction. 
In Battlefield Earth, there is an advanced technology, but it's the technology of the aliens who have conquered Earth and virtually wiped out humanity. Pitted against this is the human spirit. I don't think I would be giving anything away to say that the human spirit prevails. So that's that's what I get in, in his books too quite a bit, but that's what I get in your books is, you know, in the end, there's amazing technology, but it's that sense of humanity that prevents your protagonist there from agreeing to this other emperor to wipe out humanity for whatever he considered is the best way to go, but just really believing in that your concept that that we will ultimately overcome. Yeah, I mean, I think we have a can-do attitude. And it's amazing. I mean, humanity is so despicable in so many ways. I mean, we can be, right? I mean, you, you know, sure. but at the same time, we can be so amazing. You know, and so we're very, we're very much a dual, you know, very polarized species where we can still be very, pretty barbaric in warfare and cruelty and all that stuff. You know, there are a lot of psychopaths running around, but at the same time, we can invent supercomputers and, and fly to Mars and, you know, all of that stuff. And, and we have this can-do attitude. And when the chips are down, I think that's when humanity is at its best. And I think that's what, um, you know, these books that, that I try to do too show humanity kind of rallying uh, and bringing out its best. And I try to capture real emotions. So, you know, the emotions you talked about, like camaraderie, loyalty, um, you know, love, those are critical to have in your science fiction novel. So yeah, technology is going on around you, but there's a reason you want to stop technology because you have loved ones, because you want to save humanity. You know, there's a reason that, um, you know, you want to conquer gravity so you can travel to other stars, so you can adventure, you know, so, so keep that in the forefront, uh, especially, like I say, camaraderie and love. And then I also like to have my character struggle with ethical issues. And I think a lot of times it always makes me cringe when I'm watching a show where you have a hero and he, he doesn't care about collateral damage. And that just always annoys me. Like they're doing a bank robbery, but he's really kind of an undercover agent, right? But, you know, to do a bank robbery, and then he ends up killing six guys who are guards, you know, while they're doing this cool bank mm -hmm. robbery. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I get the guy's undercover, uh, but but he's got to feel horrible. He's killing these innocent people. I mean, you know, maybe these are henchmen of some evil guy, and the henchmen don't know how evil he is. So they're innocent. I mean, so they're, you know, so yeah, you kill the henchmen. So... Or, or, you know, I'll give you a better example, I think. In, in one of the Superman movies that got a lot of uh, criticism, Superman and Zod were having a battle, and they have it in the middle of a city. And they end up wiping out the whole city. I mean, they're like smashing each other through skyscrapers. I mean, they're causing unbelievable destruction. And, uh, you know, instead, as Superman, he should have taken it to some rural area where there were no humans if he's going to fight this guy. You know, but, but so my my protagonist, you know, if they know somebody's innocent, they're going to kill themselves not to hurt them. You know, even right. if it puts themselves in peril and, and if they have to hurt them, they're going to agonize over it. Like, I can't believe I had to kill this innocent guy. I mean, they agonize even over killing bad guys. I mean, so, you know, I, I like to have characters who are decent, decent characters, you know, and I think a lot of times that's missed in some of these novels where the, yeah, the guy's a badass and the guy's, you know, a, a good guy. But he's also a little bit callous in general, a little bit overly callous. Yeah, I think that's, that's also Hollywood doing their bizarro routine. You know, so I've, I've kind of, I've lost interest in like in the Marvel Universe or whatnot because it's gotten so much 
for the spectacle and the CGI and the story's lost and there's no, there's the sense of humanity is gone. Yeah. But anyway, as I said at the outset of this interview, this is a writer's future. So I'm also interested in what you have to, what can you bring to the table to inspire these young writers to the rights and wrongs and pitfalls to avoid? Boy, that's a real tricky one. I mean, I think, <laughs> I mean, writing is a hard business and I'm not going to, I'm not telling anybody anything they don't know. It's getting harder all right. the time. I mean, on one hand, it's getting easier because before you had these gatekeepers in New York and, uh, you know, it was almost, you know, you could write a novel and it was unlikely it would ever be seen by anybody. You know, so you, right. you kill yourself. That's what I did. When I wrote, there was no ebooks. When I started, you know, 15 years ago writing novels, my first three novels never got published, ever. I mean, they just, I killed myself, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. Uh, and there was no outlet. If you didn't get published, you know, if they didn't get picked up by Random House, you know, there was no ebook market. Now there's indie publishing. So now anybody right. can put their own book out there. So that's a blessing. I mean, that's awesome that you know that if you spend the time to write it, you have a chance. You can put it out there. Um, the problem with that is everybody is writing now. I mean, and, and there are guys who are writing a book a month, literally a book a month. And so there's, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of new books being put out every single year. So to kind yeah. of, to break through is really, really tough. Um, and, and really, you know, it, it takes some- How did you do it? I got lucky. I mean, I think that's the only way you can do it. I mean, I think it, t it takes two things, John. I think you, you have to write a, a good novel. Uh, I mean, obviously, if you write a horrible novel, no matter what happens, it's unlikely to take off. But you have to write a right. good. But, but writing a good novel isn't enough. You have to have luck. I mean, it, there, you know, John Grisham's first novel di didn't go anywhere. You know, and it wasn't until the firm that his first novel, A Time to Kill, became a bestseller. But in the beginning, the first novel sold like a hundred copies. Um, Dan Brown's first three novels barely sold anything. People in the business were wondering why they even bought the fourth one because he was doing so poorly. And then the fourth one was The Da Vinci Code, and it became a huge blockbuster. And then all of his books became blockbusters. So, so I think you know, every, almost every author will tell you that it's unfortunately random and there's so much luck involved. You know, even Stephen King, he, he wrote so many novels – he put half of them under his name and half of them under the name Richard Bachman. It was, uh -huh. it was a pseudonym. And the Stephen King souls were, were bestsellers and the Bachman books barely sold. You know, and it was the same author. You know, he was writing the same stuff and just, you know, just a different name and they didn't go anywhere. So, so I, I, I don't know if I'm being helpful. I'm not trying to be discouraging, but I think, you know, you have to realize it's, it's tough out there um, and it does take a lot of luck. Uh, even if you're the best author who ever lived, you need luck. Right. Now, also, um, to give them a little bit more hope because <laughs> Sorry. Your, your, your stories, <laughs> always the glass is half full. Yeah. I'm going to fill this glass up again right now. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. We can. Let's delete this. Let's cut this. Cut this out, John. No, go ahead. I'm kidding. Oh, uh, yeah. So, because I've, in today's publishing age, there are so many ways of, of getting out there. But one of the things like Brandon Sanderson, who's one of our contest judges for Rise of the Future, said, you know, he did the $41 million Kickstarter. He said, up front, he said, you got to have a big fan base to do what he just did. And some of the other authors I work with who 
are now having success with Kickstarters to fund their programs, their, their books, projects, um, have worked to build a fan base. They've got, whether it's going to be through their, they've got a fan club they're building, they've got big social with TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, or they're doing something with um, with writing groups, whatever it is, they get something where they start building some type of recognition. People like them, you know, they're likable people and they just don't, the hat of an author is no longer just a person that writes a book. You've got to be willing, like we're talking right now on a podcast, which will go out now to right now up to about 2 million people listening per episode. So a lot of people will hear about you and hopefully the interesting things that we've talked about will inspire them when, wow, I'm going to check this guy out and, and do it. So I think there's a big part to that as well. And I bring this up because in your last, in portals, you said you'd stopped doing podcasts and picked up again when you did the writers of future podcast and coast to coast, and then start doing others as well. Is that something that you found help helps fan the fire at least? Yeah, no, definitely. And I, uh, um, and, and sorry, sorry. I, hopefully they're going to, they're going to want to learn more about me rather than just be depressed. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, no, no, I, I did, uh, in the early days when Tor bought the book, I did a, they, they booked me on so many radio shows and podcast. They, they didn't even have podcasts back then. It was all radio. And I talked right. about psychopaths because the book was about psychopaths. Uh, a science fictional treatment, but about psychopaths. And so I became like a world expert on psychopaths, which is not kind of what I set out to do. And then I get like emails from psychopaths. Hey, I'm a psychopath. I'm going to be in San Diego. Let's have lunch. And, and, I, and I was like, okay, I, I, you know, I, 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 I'm sure you're really interesting, but I probably don't want to tell my wife I'm having lunch with somebody who writes me saying he's a psychopath. Um, right. but, but anyway, no, so I stopped doing them. I got kind of burnt out. Um, uh, but you're right. I mean, it is important. You've got to continue. It is more than just writing. Um, uh, you know, you, you do have to, you know, find a way to get, to get noticed. Um, and, you know, and, and look on the optimistic side, <laughs> uh, there are a lot of people making a living now as writers. Sure. Um, and, and so, you know, to make it really huge and to become a huge name, but to to you know to make fifty or hundred thousand dollars a year to you know to be able to write full time, there are a lot of people now who are able to do that through writing. So uh, and, and science fiction is a great genre, by the way. I mean, it's really more popular than it's ever been. Yeah, that's for sure. Now, with there's all kinds of ways to sell your books. You've got you know into the bookstores through the traditional lines, the you know the printed books. You've got um, eBooks through Kindle. There's the other. Um, like Kobo and other uh, ebook outlets, and there's the audiobooks, uh, which I've enjoyed. Your listening to your stories as well. How is it that you find, or how do you find the different platforms? As I guess, from a financial viewpoint, to, to make it as an author, which is it? All of them gets added up, or is there certain ones that work better for you, be specific with science fiction, or how does how would that go? Yeah, it's a, it's it's a tough tough uh, calculation. So I, I after the tour the tour novel, which is a hardcover, they did a beautiful job. But they charged twenty five dollars for the hardcover, and mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I was selling six ninety nine uh, ebooks, and I was making five dollars for every six ninety nine ebook that I sold on Amazon, and two fifty for every twenty five dollar book that tour sold. And so you know the economics didn't make any sense. So since then, I've gone and publish my own novels. And a lot of, 
you know, authors like Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey. They they started as independent uh, novels. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the problems is Amazon is kind of the nine billion pound gorilla. So they, dom- right. they dominate. And uh, they have this Kindle Unlimited program. And now most readers are in Kindle Unlimited. And so if you – you have to be exclusive to Amazon in order to be in that program. And so if you're on Barnes & Noble and Kobo and all the other platforms, you can't be on that program. And, and that can be really painful because so many Amazon uh, readers use Kindle Unlimited. And if you don't use it, your sales fall, your ranking falls. And uh, because they're so dominant, uh, I mean, so I'm exclusive to Amazon. And I don't want to be, but Amazon is pretty, uh, pretty clever. And they make it so it's really hard not to be uh, for the most part. Right. Do you have all of your books or do you have some books that you have on traditional and other books through Amazon and other books some other way? I, I, all, right now, all of my books are, are exclusive and on Kindle Unlimited. You know, obviously, you can get them in bookstores. You can get paperback copies. You know, the audio is done through Audible or Podium. Well, that's Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, they're- You have Podium as well? Yeah. The, the, this Portals was Podium. So they're widely distributed. But yeah, I'm think, I think this is what I'm writing right now. I think I might go back to traditional publishing just, you know, just to try it out, see what it's like one more time. You know, I've, I've kind of stayed away for a long time. And I think a lot of people do a mixture. A lot of authors nowadays do some traditional and some indie. Yeah, I know Todd McCaffrey and McCaffrey's son who picked up her universe with um, the Dragon Rider series. He has that series that he does through traditional publishing, but he does a lot now through Kindle where he does his own uh, Kindlepreneur uploading the, the stories that he writes on that. And he work, you know, working. So he, he hits both of it. I just recently interviewed Hugh Howie. And he went traditional recently, but now he's anxious to go back to where he does it himself because he's he's pretty prolific and he wants to he has something he does he he has his like sand and across the sand his recent books there um, which we just talked about because he just released across the sand and there he writes it in five part like novellas that he puts together into a novel and he likes that format to be able to do that so that he puts those out as electronic and then he puts together and. and stitches them all together makes one novel so he's he's tried both ways and he's got his obviously his audiobooks he does through um amazon but it seems like there's a lot of options and like yourself you've tried different ways you've done different things and so now you've been able to work out what's a a mix that works for you and i i think maybe it's good for people to try them all out i mean it's easy to say try traditional it might not come that way, but there's so many different options to do it. We cover a lot of them on this podcast, but I was just asking for yourself, like what works, what has worked for you and where do you see taking it for yourself? Yeah. Like I said, I'm going to go back to traditional, maybe Uh, we'll see, but I think Amazon exclusive has been working pretty well, but I, I, I agree with you, you know, try different things. Um, I think that one thing I, I do want to say that I think is important in that I think some people are too consumed with marketing. I mean, you and I agree that it's important nowadays to market yourself, to market your novels, you know, to get your name out there. But I think you can also make the mistake of, you know, you write a novel and then you spend four years, you know, advertising and, and, and you know, finding, doing podcasts and doing whatever you can. And, and, there, and I think you also have to keep writing new books. 
because the more books Correct. you write, you know, it's like buying a lottery ticket. I mean, you have to, you know, buy more lottery tickets and the more books you write, the more, more chances you have of succeeding. And like I said, with Dan Brown, you know, he didn't hit it big till his fourth book. So if he would have stopped with the first three and done nothing but marketing, he would not be known today. Yeah. I mean, same with Brandon Sanderson. I think he, he had six submitted. Um, he received an honorable mention and that's what kind of kept him in the in the fray of, of trying to submit and become published as an author because he was ready to give up. Uh, we've got, you know, several people that wrote several books before they finally made their break on it. And there's even a, a pretty big writing conference that occurs every year in Las Vegas called 20 Books to 50K. And that's where you have to write 20 books and get 20 books out there so people can have something to, to like, I'll check it out. Okay, I'll check out the next thing. Check, And then if you get 20 books, then you're pretty much guaranteed you've built up your writing chops enough and you'll be able to make $50,000 a year. And that's what the conference is built around. But you're right. You've got to keep on writing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and you do improve through time. Um, no question about it. You kind of hone your craft. Yeah. Now getting back to my intro about your being an alien. So how is it you can write such realistic material about aliens? Maybe I am an alien. I think you've, you've, you've hit something on I the know, head, John. I'm, I'm, on, I'm, I'm, I'm going to break the story here on this podcast. I hope my wife doesn't hear this because I think she thinks I'm an alien too. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that, um, like I said, I just was, I grew up with a, a huge fan of Isaac Asimov and, and his thing was he was a, you know, biochemist, a PhD, and he, you know, he got accurate science and, and he, it was just all fascinated me. And so to me, the most fascinating thing, it isn't just imagination. It's imagination that could be real. That's what makes it more interesting in my view. Is it just something you sure. throw out there that we all know is impossible because that makes it fantasy? The thing about science fiction is this is something that could actually happen that you could aspire to. And that's why science fiction has been an inspiration to so many scientists. I mean, the cell phone, uh, the guy, Martin Cooper, who invented the cell phone and Motorola, he was inspired by the communicator from Star Trek. You know, mm -hmm. and there's so many examples where science fiction has absolutely inspired scientists to go into science in the first place and to create specific inventions. The MP3 player was also inspired by Star Trek, you know, being able to, because in, in Star Trek, the next generation, when Picard would say, hey, play Beethoven and, you know, and the Beethoven would, would magically start playing. So, um, yeah, I think that um, f for me, be, you know, putting putting out some really far out wild ideas, but also anchoring them in actual fact is kind of the most interesting thing to do. Yeah, it is. And I think it's, at least for science fiction, it's interesting. I'm right now, because anytime I do a, a podcast, like, you know, I have to read at least one book of who I'm interviewing just so I can have some, a sense of who they are, what they, and what kind of personality it is. I'm reading a, a fantasy right now. And I've read a lot of science fiction over the last couple of months. So this is like the first fantasy and it, it, it's, a, it's such a different world. And you can't, like in writing fantasy, you're not, okay, based upon, like what do you, all you can base upon is other fantasy or some agreed upon rules. Whereas in science fiction, you are, and, and fantasy is amazing storytelling. Don't get me wrong on that. I'm just, it's just a whole different critter. So with science fiction, though, to make it really sell, there's got to be that plausibility factor and that 
that bridge from science fact to science fiction has got to be so smooth, at least for me. You've got the stuff, you know, way back, which my first love was the E. Doc Smith on the Lensman series, I got to say. And, and that was great um, stuff. I read that too. Yeah. That was yeah, great that's stuff. What, that's got my love for science fiction, but that's like you're referring to fantasy. Um, it's just, it was just by magic that th- this came to be, you know, and, but with current science fiction, at least the science fiction that I enjoy reading and like what you write, there's got to be that sense of reality and plausibility to it. And we've made enough discoveries with science, I guess, that it makes it easier for a science fiction writer to, explore these things that before was just so far out there that now it's like wait which which part is is make believe which part is for real yeah you know have you had to go ahead sorry go ahead no i was gonna say you know it's interesting about facebook uh or social media you know there's there's so many horrible aspects of so you know dangerous aspects of social media but one thing that i love about it is uh you know they know what your tastes are so if you if you look at articles about science advances they'll send you more of them. And then the more you look at them. So if I look at my Facebook feed, it's nothing but like breakthrough science articles. I mean, it's great. Like one after another. And so I keep on reading them and they keep on sending more. And it's really amazing. All of the things that are being worked on around the world and, you know, science builds on itself. So the, so the more Legos you have, the more things you can build. And so, you know, the more we advance, the more tools we have, you know, as we get supercomputers to help us, as we get, you know, more and more understanding. It's just accelerating. And it's pretty wild on a daily basis. I go through my newsfeed and it's just insane. All of the breakthroughs that are happening around the world. Yeah. I was recently interviewing Jonathan Mayberry and he's got this Joe Ledger series. And I, and we talked about it and he said, he's, he's had some things where he's had to because of the technology he had in there, he had to take out of it because some of the stuff wasn't okay to write about. Have you had that come up before with, with your stories where you had to like keep some of the stuff out? You mean because it was like intelligence agencies were worried about it or? Yeah. Um, no, I, I really haven't. Um, no one's ever really co- contacted me. Once I got contacted a long, long time ago, um, early on before I was published, when uh, I found some, it's a long story, but, but no, not for, not really. I haven't been impeded. Yeah. I was just curious if sometimes, at least near future, maybe because you're a couple hundred years in the future, the, the near future, it gets like what really is plausible now versus like some of the, the high tech military gear and activities and tools and toys that they've got are, he had to take some of the stuff out because it, it was it was for real. Yeah, and no, he had to. He had to, yeah. Yeah, I'm about fifteen or twenty years in the future, and and uh, it's um, yeah. I mean, I don't name like I don't do. If I was going to use a technology that was real, I wouldn't like. If you call it, you know, the F eighteen or whatever it is before the F eighteen comes out, then I think you're going to get in trouble. But if you just make up sure. a fictional name, so you can describe the technology as long as you don't, you know like point to what base is coming out of or, you know, give specifics. I think you're okay. Yeah. And just to clarify my comment, you said, I said, you know, medium future. And you just said 15, 20 years in the future. That makes what I read even a lot more scary. So anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) well, yeah, 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 it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, yeah, I call them near future thrillers actually. Uh, But, you know, a lot of them lately have been, 
have used alien technology or, you know, far future stuff, but it all takes place on Earth. I mean, I think that's most of yeah. my novels basically take place on Earth and they take place with not with people like you and me, you know, who are kind of in our culture, our society where there's television and there's cars and, you know, whatever. Uh, but I can also like the Enigma Cube, you know, it's an artifact, an alien artifact, you know, that can control gravity that they find. So, yeah. you know, it's far out technology that could be thousands of years away, but it's here on Earth and in modern time. Right. Yeah. So anyway, it's, I'm glad you've got the, the glass half full and cause I do like the end, how your stories always end. It's just now that I know that it's within my lifetime, probably I'm, uh, I'm a little bit more like, uh, what's coming up in the near future. You have to read, <laughs> you have to read more, John, come on. There's, there's plenty more. I mean, I know you're super busy cause you've got to re- read everybody's novel who comes on the show. So I'm, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but there are, no, I mean, I enjoy reading like, your stuff. I will be reading more of your stuff. That's for sure. I've got, I'll get through this next window. And in, in the next two weeks, I'm going to uh, Superstars. And I've got six interviews there. So I've got six books I'm jamming through right now to get ready for two weeks from now. That's why I'm in the middle of this one epic fantasy, which is a definite, my mind's wrenching getting to this whole other mindset to, to read epic fantasy as compared to epic science fiction. Mm. But it's not not a bad job where you get to read a lot. <laughs> you get to read, read I know, a lot. I know. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I do enjoy that. That's for sure. Yeah. So now um, we're getting close to our hour. So I'm just curious. For those who are not familiar with your work, what do you recommend? You know, that's a really uh, impossible que- question. Um, I think Infinity Born. Infinity Born, I think, is okay. a, is a really good one. Um, I mean, in general, I mean, they're all similar in the sense that you know they're all thrillers, a lot of action. Uh, a lot of twists and turns, a lot of reveals. I mean, that's what I pride myself on my novels for, for being sure. twisty and fast paced and, and page turners. And so they're all that way. You know, they all have strong protagonists. And, and I like my characters to always be, I like women and men alike to always be pretty, pretty darn bright. You know, so they're brilliant, right. brilliant people. And I also like them, you know, when I do action scenes, I like them to outwit the bad guys. I don't like them to just, you know, have bigger guns. Or, you know, I mean, they're, <laughs> yeah. you know, better, better karate guys. I like them to use their brain and outwit the bad guys. And that, to me, that's the ultimate action scene where it's all about being super clever rather than being super strong. Yeah. And so all, they're all kind of alike. So I would recommend going to Amazon if you're interested uh, and just reading the synopses of various novels and seeing which one looks the more interesting to you. Good. Yeah, I've enjoyed Unidentified, Seeker, and the most recent one was Portals. And they're all amazing stories. They're all near future. And um, just they're definite page turners, as you, as you stated. Thank you. Yes. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the UK, Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and illustrators of the future are contests created by Owen Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Doug. I Thank you, John. I appreciate it.